0: Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Open with me to Jude chapter 1, I would say, but there's only one chapter, so open with me to the book of Jude. It's only 25 Verses, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. It says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word this morning. I pray that as we dive into just one verse today, God, that you would um, speak truth to us out of this verse that just explodes in our heart and that we would walk away from this morning, Lord, so built up and encouraged in you um, that we would leave differently than we came here. And that is our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So two weeks ago, we began a series in this tiny but powerful letter of Jude. And um, then in the first week, we kind of took what we were calling kind of the 30,000-foot view of the letter. Uh, 25 verses, we just kind of zoomed out, and from the high view, kind of took a look at the whole forest. But then we've been using this analogy and saying, that okay, it's good to do that with Scripture. We should do that with all of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, just kind of get the feel for how all of it plays in together, how all of it tells one redemptive story, Uh, but it's also good then to zoom in and come in closer and not just look at the whole forest, but also then begin to examine every tree and every branch and turn over every leaf and just get the most that we possibly can out of the word of God. And so uh, two weeks ago, we gave the overview. Last week, we began to kind of zoom in and turn over every leaf. And so we just spent our whole time last week in one verse. That's verse one. Uh, And we we saw that uh, Jude identified himself. He identified himself as Jude, the brother of James. And we learned that that also means that he was the half-brother of Jesus himself. And though he was the half-brother of Jesus, did not think to kind of name drop like that or, or throw that out there like, Hey, I'm Jude, the brother of Jesus, so you better listen to me. He doesn't do that. He describes himself as the servant of Jesus Christ. He says, I live to serve him. I don't. My life doesn't belong to me. I exist to serve Jesus. And so we saw that last week. And then we saw who he was writing to in verse one. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And he's writing to who? It's there in verse one. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. And we looked at just the powerful depth of those words. What it means to be called and beloved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus. This week, we're only going to get through one more verse. We're going to look at verse two. Uh, But when you read it, I'm going to read it to you again here real quick. But as we read it, man, what a good verse. Um, And Jude is still in his introduction here. So verses one and two kind of constitute Jude's introduction to this letter. And so let me read verse two again to you, even though we just read it. He says this. This is where we're going today. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so obviously there's three parts here. This is kind of an opening benediction. A benediction is just speaking a blessing over people. And so he, right at the beginning of this letter, speaks a blessing over those who are listening to this letter, who are receiving this letter. And so that would include us this morning. So those who are sitting here this morning, listening to and receiving from the instruction that the Holy Spirit has given through Jude, the word of God says to you this morning, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So let's take a look at those. Let's break all three of those down. Let's talk about mercy. Mercy. Where would we be without the mercy of God? I was thinking about that this week. Like, where would I be without God's mercy? Matthew Henry, <clears throat> in his commentary, said, the mercy of God is the spring and fountain of all the good we have or hope for. Mercy, not only to the miserable, but to the guilty. You see what he does there? He highlights at least two conditions we can find ourselves in in which we need mercy. Mercy. Okay, at least two. So he says mercy, not only to the miserable, but also to the guilty. So let me give you two things here. These are in your notes. Number one, God has mercy for the suffering. Mercy for the suffering. That is for those who are suffering, those who are experiencing distress or suffering of any kind. Psalm chapter 86, we're gonna read verse three and then we're gonna read verses six and seven. It says this, the psalmist says, have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long, Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. When I'm in distress, I call to you because you answer me. And so if you're here this morning, it's real simple. This is not rocket science, but if you're here this morning and you are in distress in any way, if you are overwhelmed by any kind of suffering, you need to know that your God is merciful. You need to know that he knows about your pain, he cares about your pain, that your suffering won't last forever, you will get through it. Scripture says in light of the glories of eternity, your suffering and my suffering is actually called light and momentary and we've, I don't know about you, but I've walked through suffering that I wouldn't call light. And I've walked through seasons of suffering that I wouldn't call momentary. But the scripture says in light of eternity, keep an eternal perspective and understand that in light of the eternal glories of being with the Father forever, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death, no more pain. It's just keep that in mind. And it, it, with that in mind, understand that your suffering is light and momentary. Now, that doesn't mean that God makes light of our suffering or that he doesn't care. He cares, he knows, and he cares. In fact, over and over in scripture, one of the greatest comforting things of scripture is that we have a God who sees and knows and cares and intervenes. A God who is scripture calls him, the God of all comfort. So God is the one who wants and longs to bring comfort to you in your time of suffering. Scripture says he is near to the brokenhearted. So the God of mercy will bring you through your suffering and will comfort you. So God has mercy for the suffering. But look at this. Number two, he has mercy not only for the suffering, but mercy for the sinful. See, some of you are suffering. Some of us are suffering because of nothing to do with our own choices or our own sin. It's just life and the world and sin and other people's choices or experiences or things that we don't understand or that are beyond our control. And so we're suffering from external forces, things outside of us that we can't change. But let's be honest, many times our need for mercy comes out of our own sinfulness, comes out of our own brokenness that we sin and we blow it and we screw up so bad. And then we're experiencing Suffering of some kind. And I love Psalm 51. It's, we, we taught it a, a while back, not, not long ago, the whole Psalm. But look at verses one and two. Because this is written by David, King David, who has sinned. He's, he's committed adultery and, and conspiracy to murder. He's repenting, he's returning to the Lord. And he says this in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Notice he doesn't say, according to my deserving it. He doesn't say, have mercy on me because I deserve mercy. He says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast, have mercy on me because your love is steadfast, according to your abundant mercy, not according to my merit. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So when it comes to sin, mercy means that we don't receive the punishment that we deserve. So we go, hang on, I deserve to be in this. And yes, we do. We sin, we blow it, we deserve to experience consequences. But what mercy means is that we don't experience the consequences that we deserve. That's the mercy of God. I have no idea if this is true my suspicion is that it's not but I read a story somewhere one time where it says that a, a mother once approached napoleon uh, seeking pardon for her son and the emperor replied that the young man had committed a, this whatever certain offense twice and that justice demanded death and the mother says but i didn't ask for justice i pled for mercy mm-hmm. Napoleon said, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. And she said, I know. If he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. Do we understand now? That's what mercy means. Mm -hmm. Of course we deserve punishment for our sin. The good news of the cross is that Christ took it. So now God is not looking to make you pay. Because payment has been made. So you go, oh, I just deserve this. Yeah, of course you deserve it, but it's been paid for. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. I don't get what I deserve. And that's why the gospel is good news. It's not, hey, I died for you. Now still earn your way to heaven. It's not that. It's like this mother who approached Napoleon and says, uh, have mercy on my son. He goes, but your son doesn't deserve mercy. And she goes, exactly. Because if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. Mercy exists because we deserve the punishment. Do you understand that? So when the enemy comes in your head and goes, oh, you deserve this, you go, yeah, of course I deserve it. Christ took it. Christ took it for me. If you're buried by the guilt and shame of your sinfulness, you need to know that your God is rich, rich, And abundant in mercy. That's how the scriptures describe him. Not just has a little bit of mercy for you. He's rich. He's abundant in mercy. That means he has more mercy than you need. There's more in the mercy account than there is in your sin account. Does that make sense? Whatever your debt of sin is, his mercy is greater. Scripture says that mercy triumphs over judgment. And God doesn't need to be convinced to show you mercy like Napoleon did in our little story. He's not reluctant to show you mercy. Scripture says he's longing to pour out his mercy on you. Come to him with a humble heart and trust that God longs to show his great mercy to you. And so God's mercy is for the suffering and for the sinful. And scripture tells us that his mercies never come to an end, but they are new every morning. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, if you need to write that one down and remind yourself every morning of the fresh mercies of God. So when Jude starts this letter by saying, may mercy be multiplied to you, that's powerful. That's powerful. But he doesn't stop there. He says, may mercy, and then he says, here, be peace. May peace be multiplied to you. Peace is an elusive and precious commodity in our chaotic world, isn't it? Right? Like so many of us, and I'm guilty, are living just stressed out, anxious, fearful, or just busy lives. I don't know anybody who isn't crazy busy. I mean, I'm so tired of saying that to people. People are tired of hearing it from me. Oh, you know, I, I'm terrible. I'm that dude that you hate. Like I'm the guy that you text and three days later, I'm like, oh my bad, bro. Hey, you know, I'm getting back to you. Everybody who knows me is like, like laughing because they know it's true. I'm like that guy that best five hours, six hours later. I'm like, oh yeah, here we go. And I always say, oh, sorry, man. Yeah. i like, oh, sorry, bro. Been crazy busy, right? I don't know anybody who isn't crazy busy. Everybody's crazy busy. And yet God has promised peace to his children. So we're living these stressed out, anxious, fearful, busy, chaotic lives. And yet God has promised peace to his children. Well, what is peace? Ephesians chapter 2, it's not in your notes, but write down Ephesians 2.14. It tells us that Christ himself is our peace. Jesus Christ himself is our peace. So that means, and listen to this, because this is important. That means that peace is found not in the absence of trouble, but in the presence of Jesus. Jesus. So we think, oh, I'll be at peace when my circumstances are peaceful. Mm. And if we're waiting to be at peace until our circumstances are peaceful, we're going to wait until we take our last breath. Peace is not the absence of trouble. It's not the absence of storms. It's not the absence of chaos in our lives. It's the presence of Christ in the midst of all of that. It's Christ in us and with us that gives us peace even in the middle of the storm. So I think of that story, I thought as we were, I was kind of uh, preparing this this week, I thought about the story of Jesus and his disciples in the boat going across to the other side and the storm hits and the disciples are freaking out since they feared for their lives and Jesus is crashed out sleeping in the boat. Like, think about that. I don't know if you've ever been like on a boat in a storm, like I see, it's pretty. I went to like Catalina Island one time, and this and like the water got bad enough, and the spray was coming up. Like I literally busted my lip on the railing because it was like heaving the boat so much. Right, I was freaking out. It was just a little jaunt to Catalina Island, but I was like, if this thing goes down right here, like I ain't got no swimmies. I'm not that strong of a swimmer to get all the way to Catalina Island. I'm just like, what if sharks? I was freaking out, you know. And sto- I understand being in a sto- in a boat in a storm and being like, whoa. Now picture that and Jesus is asleep. He's just crashed out of sleep and his disciples wake him up and they're like, what's wrong with you that you're sleeping through this? Jesus calms the wind and the waves. But he says, oh, you of little faith. What was it? So sometimes Jesus calms the storm. Many times Jesus calms his child in the storm. So Jesus woke up and calmed the storm for the disciples. But what he was trying to tell them was you could be just as at peace as I was in the middle of the storm. So don't don't give the power for your peace, your internal peace. Don't give the power of whether you're going to have peace or not to things that are out of your control like circumstances or other people. As long as you're waiting for other people to do certain things or circumstances to line up just right for you to be at peace, you are always powerless to live in peace. As long as you understand Christ is in me and with me, and it's the presence of Christ that can give me peace in any situation or circumstance, the world could be falling down around you, and the child of God can be in perfect peace. Now, easier to preach than to live. Right? Easier to preach than to live. I just sat up here and preached it, but I'm not batting a thousand on this one. Ask my wife. The word peace here in the Greek is irene, and it means peace of mind. It means wholeness. Think of wholeness being complete peace of mind and wholeness. It corresponds to the Hebrew word shalom. You ever heard that word? Shalom, which is a powerful word. It means wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility. It was a common greeting. So people used to greet each other that way. Peace to you. That's why he greets us. Peace to you. Shalom. It's a, it was a common greeting that means universal flourishing. It was like saying, hey, I pray that your life will flourish in every possible way. the scriptures speak of peace in a few important ways. I've given you three here, but these are important to walk through. Number one speaks of having peace with God. Peace with God. Look at Romans chapter five, verse one. Paul writes, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that before you were following Jesus Christ, no matter how nice you thought of him, scripture called you and I enemies of God. You go, I was an enemy of God. And the scripture is pretty clear if we were not in Christ, we were called enemies of God. But this verse says we're no longer enemies. As those who have repented and begun to follow Jesus, trusted in Him for salvation, and who are in Christ now, it says, We have peace now with God. Number two, scriptures speak of us having peace from God. Peace from God. Look at Ephesians chapter one, verse two. He says, grace to you and peace. And where does it come from? Peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand guys, that peace is a gift. True and lasting peace can only be found in him. It's received as a gift from God. It can't be earned or worked up or strive for or conjured up in our own strength. If If you are struggling and striving to try to create peace, we're doing it wrong. And I've been here, I've been on that little hamster wheel of just, oh, try to feel more peaceful. Right? Like like I can create peace. Peace is a gift from God, from the God who who himself is peace. This is, God is our peace. So it's just receiving the gift of peace. I'm not creating it, not conjuring it up, not striving for it. Oh, I gotta do more things to earn peace in my life. It's no, it's just receive it from him, walk in his presence, enjoy his presence, know that he's present with you and that his presence gives you peace. It's a gift, it comes from God. So number one, we have peace with God. Number two, we have peace from God. And number three, scripture says, we have the peace of God. Now this, when I got this one, blew my mind. Philippians chapter four, verse seven. There's a whole context here that I wish I could break down, but read all of Philippians four, it's amazing. But Philippians chapter four, verse seven says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That means the peace of God won't always make sense. That means your circumstances will be telling you one thing and you can still be at peace even if you don't understand why you have peace in the middle of this chaotic situation. It doesn't make sense because it goes beyond your understanding. But what kind of peace did it say we have? It says the peace of God. Let me give you one more verse to make this point. John chapter 14, verse 27. This is Jesus himself speaking. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. A troubled heart, a fearful heart, is something we let happen. That's what that verse just said. A troubled, fearful, anxious, stressed out, chaotic heart, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't allow that. Because I've given you my peace. I left it with you. I gave it to you as a gift. My peace I give to you. So when the scripture says, the peace of God is yours. So the peace that we receive from God is the peace of God. And what that means is peace as God himself has it. The, think of the peace of mind that our Lord has in any given situation. How many things do you think God is stressed out about? How many circumstances do you feel like God is fearful about, like, oh, I don't know how this is going to work out. Well, I don't know how, like, I'm stressed about paying this bill or doing that thing or working this situation out. Do you think God is stressed out about this? Do you think he's sitting at him like, I know, Jason, you're right. Like, how are we going to work it out? He's not stressed out. <clears throat> I'm like, God, how am I going to do that? How am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to make that stretch? And he's like, I know, I know. It's awful, isn't it? God's not stressing out. <laughs> So, so, so imagine the perfect peace that God himself walks in, that God himself has, that God himself is. That's the peace that Christ says is ours in him. He says, my peace, the peace that I have, the peace that sleeps in the storm, that's what I've given you. So we don't have to live troubled or anxious or afraid We don't have to be stressed out or fearful or or, or living with these chaotic hearts and minds. I'm preaching to myself here. This is an amazing blessing he's speaking over them and over you this morning. May mercy, peace, and what's that dark thing? Love, love be multiplied to you. Remember back in verse one, Jude has already called them beloved in God the Father you are beloved like a, like a cherished, treasured, prized child of God. If you're a parent, think of how immensely you love your children. Nothing you wouldn't do for them. I know it. It's instinct. It's like as a parent, you just instantly, I would take a bullet for every one of them without even hesitating. A self-sacrificial, pure love. And we don't even love like God loves. Our love is tainted and imperfect and pure. But ima- I mean, I can only imagine. As a Father, I can imagine. Just a little bit, this kind of love. He's already called us beloved in God the Father. Now in verse 2, he prays that love will be multiplied to us. There's a lot of love in the first two verses of this letter. I want to give you quickly, and then we'll close, four things about the love of God. I had like 12 things, okay? Right? I, had t- I had 12 and I had to stop myself at 12. I was just kept writing. These verses just keep coming and just kept coming because the Bible has so much to say about the love of God. But I just want to give you four real quick and just encourage you. Get home, get a Bible concordance, look up love in the scripture and, and have a field day. You are so loved. Number one, God's love is not dependent on your performance. God's love for you is not dependent upon your performance for him. Look at Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the who? For the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, like someone would hardly die for someone who is righteous. Though perhaps for a good person, someone might dare to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, still enemies of God, Christ died for us. He says his love for us was demonstrated not after we earned it. It was demonstrated in the midst of our darkest, deepest mess. While we were still in the pit of our most sinfulness, Christ demonstrated his love by laying down his life for us. God's love for you is not dependent upon your performance. If God only loved those who were not sinners, he wouldn't love anyone. You understand that, right? Because we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what scripture says. So scripture teaches simultaneously that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet somehow you and I get convinced by the enemy and by other people and the way that the enemy and people respond to us that somehow we are more sinful and more broken and more unworthy of God's love than other people. You've never met a person who earned God's love by good behavior. If God only loved those who were not sinners, he wouldn't love anyone. So it's not that God doesn't care about sin. Of course he cares about sin. He actually cares about sin because he loves you and I. He cares about sin because it's destructive to us and to others. And if he loves us, he has to care about what is destructive to us. So even his feelings about sin are motivated and come out of his love. God is love and everything he is towards you is love. This means that God doesn't just love some future better version of you. He loves you, the you of right here and right now. All the mess, all the imperfection, all the falling short of peace and all these things that we do where we go, oh, and all of our sin and all of our mess. God loves you. He loves you right now. And of course, like I said, he cares about sin, but his love for you isn't tossed around on the waves of your behavior. Think about that. God's love for you isn't strong when you're doing well and then weak for you when you're not doing well. He isn't hot and cold based upon your performance. Like if you are reading the Bible enough and praying enough and doing all these good things enough that all of a sudden God loves you more. God loves you perfectly. His love is perfect. God is love and God is perfect. That means his love is perfect. There's nothing flawed or tainted or wrong about God's love. It's always perfect towards you. Never lacking. So I said four things about the love of God. I spent a lot of time on number one. Let's give you number two. God's love is demonstrated by the cross. I hope we've already made this point, but let's make it again. John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. That's the greatest act of sacrificial love that could be demonstrated is laying down your life in love for someone else. Look at 1 John chapter four, verses nine and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest or was shown, revealed among us. How? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big word that has a lot of ideas wrapped up in it, but it basically means this, that Jesus Christ took our place, was our substitute on the cross. All Remember the mercy part? All the judgment that I deserved, all the, the shame and the condemnation that I deserved, that was poured out on Christ. That's what it means that Christ was a propitiation, that he took my place. I deserve to be on that cross. I I earned that cross. I deserved it. But God demonstrates his love by saying, you step aside. I take your sin. I give you my righteousness. He says, in this is love, not that we've loved God. Love is not demonstrated by how we feel about God because let's be honest, we're hot and cold, aren't we? I'm on fire for God one moment and the next moment I'm like, Lord, help me to be more passionate about you. So it's not, love is not demonstrated by how much I love God because that's a thing that can be moved and tossed. It says, no, no, it's demonstrated in the perfect, unchanging, unfailing, eternal love of God for you. That's true love. Scripture says even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because that's who he is. He can't deny himself. His love for you is steadfast. It's faithful. It's eternal. It's immovable. It's unshakable. And the cross is the greatest demonstration of the love of God. John chapter three, verse 16, arguably the most popular scripture verse in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Listen, it's easy to pay lip service To say that you love someone. We throw around the word love. It's crazy. I say, I love tacos. And in the next breath, I love my wife. Like, right? Like, and I do. I love tacos. Tacos are amazing. (laughs) Tacos have a place in my heart forever. But when I say I love tacos, I don't mean it in the same way as when I say I love my wife. But even then, so even then, like with my wife or with somebody else that I love or no, I could say... It's easy to say, oh, I love them so much. Like I just said earlier about my kids. Oh, I love them so much, I wouldn't hesitate to take a bullet for them. Like I would totally trade places. It's easy to pay lip service to that kind of love. It's another thing to actually do it. It's another thing to actually show it and demonstrate that love. What about when love becomes costly, when it costs you something? What about those moments when love might cost you everything. So many people say they would die for the one they love. Jesus actually did. So if you ever question God's love for you, just take a long, hard look at the cross. Yes, The cross is hideous and brutal and gruesome and awful. But when you understand that it was love that sent Jesus to the cross, it becomes beautiful. The cross becomes the most beautiful act of sacrificial love that we've ever seen. It's the innocent dying for the guilty, the perfect Dying in place of the sinful. Scripture just told us that he died so that we might live. And that that is love. That that is love. Number three, God's love will make you fearless. God's love will make you fearless. 1 John chapter 4 verses 18 and 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And we love because he first loved us. Are you still living in fear of the punishment of God? He says, understand the love of God. And it will banish your fear. Child of God, if you are living in terror of the punishment of God, you haven't yet understood the cross. You haven't yet understood the immense love of God for you. Because fear, says, casts out, drives away. I'm sorry, love casts out and drives away all fear. He says, because fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love yet. God's love for you is perfect. He loves you perfectly. It's not tainted in any way. And that's only true of God's love. Like our love is so imperfect. Even the love that I have for my family is so imperfect. I love my children. I think with the purest love I can possibly think of. And yet my love for them is even imperfect. But God's love is not imperfect. Listen, the love of other people may and probably has and will fail you. Because that's what we do. We're fallen creatures. God's love will never fail you. Will never fail you. He doesn't want you to live in fear of punishment. He doesn't want you to live in the torment of fearful of condemnation. If you are in him, he wants you to walk in the fearless freedom of knowing that you are perfectly loved. By him, the God who is love. The reason I say this makes you fearless because this is the only person's opinion who really ultimately matters for eternity, right? <clears throat> People may hold whatever against you. People may fail to love you. People may abandon you. And yet if you lived every day, every moment, convinced 100%, that you were perfectly loved by the God of all creation. Imagine how fearless you could live in the face of every other circumstance. Not that it wouldn't hurt. Not that it wouldn't be painful. But that the one whose opinion matters more than anyone, the one who knows you better than you even know yourself, loves you perfectly. Imagine how that, knowing that deep in your bones, would just drive away all your fear. Fourth and final thing about the love of God. Well, it's certainly not the final thing, it's just the final thing in this sermon. But the fourth thing that I want to share with you is that nothing can separate you from God's love. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Paul writes, this is an amazing climax to a fantastic chapter. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a rhetorical question. Can anything separate you from the love of Christ? That's what he's saying. What in the world could ever separate you from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep. To be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure, certain, convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So sometimes we question, God, do you love me because we're experiencing hunger? It says here, famine. Oh, God, you let me go through this. Do you still love me? Or nakedness, or peril, or danger, or sword. God, I'm walking through one of the most brutal seasons of my life. Like I don't, I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel and it's punch after punch, wave after wave. God, do you still love me? The answer is yes. Yes. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing can separate God's love from you. God always loves you perfectly. Every circumstance, every season of life and not just the things that are happening to you but but the things that you've done. If you are in Christ, then nothing can separate you from God's love. There's no circumstance or situation, no trial or persecution, no suffering or sin, no edict of man or attack of the enemy, no demon in hell, not even death itself can separate you from God's love. That's what Romans 8 just said to you. You're secure in God's love. His love for you is not going anywhere, it's firm. Steady, constant, eternal. And so Jude opens his amazing letter by praying for these three things, speaking these blessings with them mercy, peace, and love. And he prays for these things because we need these things, we need mercy we experience suffering and because we sin and we need mercy and so Jude says may mercy be multiplied to you if you're here this morning and you need mercy for whatever reason may mercy be multiplied to you we need peace because we experience chaos and we're so tempted to stress out and fear and so if you're here you are living in stress and chaos and fear for whatever reason may peace be multiplied (coughs) to you this morning and we need love because it's the only thing that will ever truly transform us rules will not transform us judgment will never transform us the love of God will change us forever And so if you're here this morning and you have not experienced love, if you have questioned the love of God or you've experienced a lack of love from people, you're struggling to even feel lovable, my prayer and Jude's benediction to you is that love would be multiplied to you today right now. So this verse is my prayer for you today and for myself. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Amen. Father God, we thank you so much. Lord, we thank you so much for mercy. Where would we be without your mercy, Lord? And God, we thank you for peace. I pray that you would pour out your peace into our minds and into our hearts that no matter, the, yes, we do pray that you would calm the storm. But Lord, if the storm isn't calmed, we pray that you would at least help us to walk in the peace that you've given us, even in the middle of a storm. So Lord, I pray that you would pour out your mercy and pour out your peace on us today. And Lord, I pray that you would pour out your love in abundance that we would leave here this morning, God, absolutely drenched and dripping in your mercy, your peace, and your perfect, unchanging, unfailing, eternal, faithful, steadfast love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.